welcome to season two of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. Our play this week is the great Russian epic Boris Godunov by Alexander Pushkin. He wrote it in 1825, and it's based on a real set of events in Russian history. Here's a quick synopsis before we begin. At the start of the play, Boris Godunov is crowned Tsar of Russia after the death of the incompetent previous Tsar, Fyodor Ivanovich. Boris has been plotting his ascent to power for years and assassinated the true heir, Fyodor's little brother Dmitri, in order to clear his path to the throne. Boris starts a reign of terror in Russia. However, a young priest called Grigory Otrepiev, also known as Grishka, decides to impersonate the dead Dmitri, overthrow the brutal Boris, and claim the throne for himself. Grigory heads for Poland, masquerading as Dmitri, and persuades the Polish nobility that he is the true heir to the Tsardom of Russia. He arranges a tactical marriage with Marina Menizek, the daughter of a powerful Polish warlord. With the Polish army behind him, he invades Russia and takes control of Boris's palace. Boris dies from a heart attack, and Grigory takes the throne as the new Tsar. Cheek by Giles staged a Russian-language production of Boris Godunov in 2000. The music you're hearing now was composed by Maxim Gutkin for that production. And now over to Declan and Nick. So once again, we are convened over our cups of tea to talk about love, power, death and grief in the back history of Cheek by Giles Productions. And this week, we're going to Russia with this fabulous play. Now, this was a really important production in Cheek by Giles history. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, we were asked by um, Valery Shadrin to do a play in Moscow for the Chekhov Festival in 2000, I think it was, 2001. We'd been to Moscow on tour with our Winter's Tale, the Russian Winter's Tale, and he said, will we come and reform a company of actors and do this play with them? And we did do it, and then the actors all wanted us to do another play with them. So it was wonderful. There was a sort of gravitational pull from this group of actors that we'd found, and that was the beginning of our Russian company. And then out of that company, we did Twelfth Night and so on and so forth, and then all the others grew from that. But it was out of that first performance of Boris Godunov in a very, very different Moscow from 20 years ago. Russians have an extraordinary love for Pushkin. It's not a reverence. It's a kind of really affectionate, horizontal, equal, loving love for Pushkin because they get used to Pushkin when they're small children because he writes for children as well as for adults. So he kind of accompanies them through their life. And his writing is extraordinary because it's not pompous, it's not pretentious, but it's very simple and transparent. So it's very, very difficult for foreigners to understand because, as always, it is the simple, transparent things that are impossible to translate. 
But it's it's an incredible play for now because it's about the legitimacy of rule and how dangerous populism is. It's absolutely about now, Boris Godunov. So what was it that first drew you to this grand play? Oh, I think it was its epic sweep. It's capacity to look at all sorts of different aspects of Russian life. It talked about the legitimacy of rule, which is always interesting. And it has a sort of Shakespearean scope, really. And there are very funny scenes and very frightening scenes and scenes of acute psychological insight. And I often think I'd be quite anxious doing a play with sort of two sofas on the stage and people talking from them. I, I, I sort of much prefer when there are great spatial problems to solve. And what about you, Nick? What was delicious in this script for you? Well, the possibilities of staging, when we decided to play in the Traverse, really, in order to create a sense of the narod, of the people, which is another huge character in the piece. And continually, um, the characters are referring and talking to the people, which is very Shakespearean as well. But we decided to play in the Travers because, it, in a way, it solves the problem, a scenic problem, that you do not need any scenery. And the idea of playing this play in front of scenery always seemed to us mm. really... Uh, you, couldn't, you can't conceive of scenery for it because it is so epic, so sweeping, and moves so swiftly from place to place that if you brought in anything to interrupt that flow, you'd be up shit creek. An extra hour of scene changes right there. Yes, exactly. But also the chief character in Boris Godunov is the people, the narod. And the last line, of course, is the people remain silent. And it's about this very, very uh, sinister thing that we like to sentimentalize things. We like to blame evil rulers who are oppressing the good people. But sometimes the good people have quite a lot to do with the ruler that imposes on them. And it's the mystery of how the people behave as, as we're facing in our elections at the moment. The, you know, it's not just a problem in the rulers, it's also a problem in the people who want those rulers to be there and why and how they're manipulated and, and so on and so forth. So there's a big mystery about the power of the people, the power of the narod. And so the traverse staging was that the audience would be looking at each other and they would be understanding that the play is about the other people that they're seeing looking back at them with the action taking plays as a kind of freeze up and down the middle, but they had to think of each other and see what we do with our votes or our non-votes or our compliance or our non-compliance. That's what I so loved about the last moment of this play, that this traverse setting with two mm. audiences looking at each other with the state mm. running in an alley down the middle of them. Mm. Is that last line, the people remain silent, that the people have been yeah. complicit in this terrible power struggle, that the next thing that we have to do according to the social contract is applaud. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea that our applause is actually condoning exactly what's happened that it was a wonderfully uncomfortable piece of making us completely complicit in the action yes they're asked to cheer grishka you know that you're supposed to hail him at the end and they just don't do anything but does saying nothing mean yes or does saying nothing mean no is it a silent yes or a silent no or a silent maybe it depends how you look at it and that's why I think Cheek by Jail Productions tend to put audiences in the hottest seat in the theatre, uh, that we tend to sit there and our, our responsibility is invoked consistently throughout these productions, which is just wonderful. 
But we should also go back to this point that you've both mentioned, which that which is that this play is surprisingly Shakespearean. And actually Pushkin himself said when he was writing it that he was inspired by Shakespeare's characterization and Shakespeare's massive plots when he was putting this play together. So in what ways do you think that this play is like the many Shakespearean plays that you've staged? I think there was a huge fashion, of course, in Europe from the mid-18th century onwards for Shakespeare. And I think what's incredible is how much Pushkin absorbed. And the thing that's really amazing about Pushkin, um, miraculous really, is how brilliant his theatrical structure is. And a lot of Russians say to me, oh, you know, it's a great problem, um, Boris Godunov, because, you know, it's, it's so, it all falls apart. And it, I think it's brilliantly put together. Because if you, if you, if your home territory is Shakespeare, none of it presents a problem. And you see how brilliantly Pushkin has contrasted one set of scenes with another. And the fact that you've got comedy scenes against serious scenes, no problem at all. That's fantastic. Those things sing and contrast with each other. What's incredible is how quickly this great flame of talent talent in Pushkin came, and how kind of quickly he went out, and he never wrote anything like that again. He wrote other small plays called The Little Tragedies, which are actually also brilliant, but he, he didn't write at that scale for the stage again. But the fact that Pushkin could do this straight off, with no experience of working in a theatre, I mean, Shakespeare at least had sort of worked as an actor, and he knew, very, knew a lot about the stagecraft. Pushkin didn't. Incredible. So there's one character in this script that I particularly love, and that's the the monk Piman, who is a writer, mm-hmm. and you also double cast mm-hmm. in this play as one of Pushkin's ancestors that Pushkin sneakily stuck into this play. But Piman is writing the story as the story's happening, and you had this wonderful first scene where Piman is at one end typing the story as the story starts to unfold. Yeah. So you're watching the story through your eyes, but you're also watching him watch the story and turn it into another work of art or another piece of writing. Yes. What does this sort of fracturing of perspectives do to the opening of the play, do you think? I think it's really important because it reminds us that all history is made up and that, um, talk about not true but useful, uh, no history is true, but some of it may be useful. So, you know, any history is just somebody's version of what happened. And it's normally tidied, neatened, edited, slanted. But there's there's no factual reportage, not even in newspaper. And of course, very often the most biased people are the people who think they have an open mind. But there's P-Men who's um, writing it all down. Indeed, it is from monastic chronicles that we get many of the stories of this time. Now, one of the scenes that we have to talk about in this production is the fountain scene, which is one of the most famous scenes in this play. So Grigory and the Polish princess Marina enter into this sort of erotic power pact to overthrow Boris Mm. in the middle of the night, which takes place around a fountain in Mm. a garden. Mm. And in your production, it is completely breathtaking. Nick, can you describe what your design approach was to this? Well, we did feel we needed um, water. I mean, because it takes place around a fountain. But how this was going to be used, and we had no idea. So the platform is raised up about a metre, I think. And so we were able to open up a swimming pool, a small swimming pool in, in the middle of the stage. I think when you fall in love, there's something very serious that happens to your identity. And although the love between Marina and Grishka is certainly ambivalent, the whole thing for us evolved around his rebaptism, which is part of the plot of the scene. It is the most wonderful scene because she thinks he's the Tsarevich um, and that he's going to inherit the throne of Russia and her father's going to help him invade Russia and claim the throne for himself because the succession to the throne is cast in doubt. And he claims to be the son of the dead Tsar. 
And so she thinks she's going to be the Tsarina of, of all Russia. She meets him. They're going to have this big seduction scene. He's going to propose to her and so on. And then he says to her, um, just imagine that I weren't the Tsar. Just imagine that I was some smelly little monk who was pretending to be the Tsar. Would you still love me? And then basically she explodes and says, that's outrageous. Is that what you're telling me? There was a huge row in the middle of it. And basically then he says, well, fine, I'm, I brush you off. I'm going to be Tsar and I'm going to get Russia back and you do whatever you like. And then she realizes he's passing out of her hands and that she, he's a winner. And she says, I think you are the real Tsar because only a real Tsar could speak like that. And then basically they get into the fountain and she baptizes him. She rebaptizes him as the Tsar. The water is very important. The fountain becomes a symbol of his changing identity. And, it, it, you know, water is a place where things get washed off and where famously people get baptized. And to be baptized, you're supposed to be cleansed of your sins and then reborn in grace and whatever. And he gets renamed. And you're given your name very often at baptism because it shows that you've become a new person. And that's what happens in the scene. So we thought it was important and so that you thought about how he changed and went into the water as one person and came out as another. But it's the scene has so many ups and downs. It's like riding a roller coaster. The whole scene, you think they're together, they're not together, she's going to kill him, she's not going to kill him, he's going to walk off, he's not going to walk off. The two of them played it absolutely brilliantly, Irina Grinova and Eugenia uh, Mironov. They were, they were just wonderful. And I, I feel so grateful to have been able to direct that scene with these two wonderful actors in it. You can't have had that water in the rehearsal room, I assume. That, that must have been at the last minute that you must have got that. No, we really, we really twisted the producer's arms for that. Bassin, as the Russian swimming pool, we'd always go, look, meet the eclam, bez bassin, bez bassin, meet without swimming pool, without swimming pool. Like, no, no, we have to have bassin. He's begin the fountain scene wishing for her to come before she arrives, throwing coins into the fountain, you know, as one might, you know, sort of to make a wish. And then after he's got his way and she's she's decided that she will accept, even though she knows he's this smelly monk and he, she'll pretend that he's um, the Tsarevich, she goes off and what he used to do is look at the audience, spout water at them, then dive under the water, and then he start picking up the gold coins that he'd thrown because he was so mean. <laughs> And that he was picking up the coins. He used to get this appalling roar of laughter from the audience. So it was very funny, but also terribly sad and very frightening. And it's again about that big theme about authenticity, you know, I'll be whoever you want me to be, and the terrible sadness of that. I think this is the amazing thing about the comedy in all of your productions, which is that the big laughs that you get from the audience tend to hide moments of actual terrible human tragedy and frailty, like this image of actually a quite vulnerable little man picking up the gold and putting it in his pocket on his way to becoming Tsar because he's forever going to be the person that he started out with, however much he changed. I laughed and wanted to hug him at the same time. So... We should also talk about this approach to Grishka's character because he metamorphoses through the play because you showed him going through many, many different chrysalises and emerging as lots of different kinds of people that he started out as this young Rasputin-esque devout orthodox monk and turned into this kind of glamorous celebrity charmer after his rebaptism in the pool. Why was this important to you? I think I think you've just said it all. I think it's we we see this man like a chameleon changing into whatever person it needs to be in order to get power. And he's fascinated hearing, first of all, it clattering out of Piment's typewriter, how Boris used that power. And he thinks, well if he used that power, why can't I use that power? You know? 
and and that's how it begins and and then he he'll become whatever it takes to get that so that he's sort of guided by one principle which is that he's going to become the czar and he'll do whatever it takes to get there and and he'll be anybody to get there it's completely fascinating to watch a human being transform like that. That seems very uh, connected to something we were talking about recently, about the kind of reason why we make theatre, which is that it reminds us that we are not authentic people. We contain multitudes, that we change all the time, that we wear different masks and different performances in every second of our lives, that actors are just doing a refined on-stage version of what we're all doing mm. every second of our lives. Yeah. I felt that this production really revealed that. I think so, yes. I mean, I think we one of the reasons it's quite consoling to go to theatre is that we see actors doing something very clearly and being paid for that we do naturally and don't really like to admit. It's very difficult for us to admit that performance is central to our lives. You know, One of the things that stops us, say, doing something that's mean is partially empathy because you don't want to hurt another human being and you can imagine yourself in their shoes and you wouldn't like to be hurt. But there's also the performance aspect of it, which you don't want to perform an action which you see yourself doing because the most important person to give you a round of applause is yourself. And you don't want to feel ashamed of what you're doing. So it's actually quite normal to be watching yourself performing. And that's what also felt so powerful about the ending that last line, the people are silent, that he's gone through all of these magnificent performances to reach power. He's finally been crowned. And you had him surrounded with this great echoing silence. He's not getting his applause. And you can see him watching himself and watching himself in relation to the people around him, having gone on this great big epic journey and maybe not really won anything at all. Yes, it's extraordinary. I mean, the really extraordinary story is what happened to Marina Mnijek afterwards, because she, first of all, was thrown into a convent, escaped, found someone else, said that this one was actually the real emperor. I think she did it twice. I think if you look it up, you'll see that the real story of Marina Mnijek is like a TV series of completely implausible things. But in fact, it happened. That was um, who Marina was. Once again, I'd love to talk about light. What I thought was so powerful in this play is the way that you used lighting with a very few simple ingredients to reveal some truly astounding moments. So you had moments where you brought lights up on the audience to remind us that we were looking at each other, that the audience were casting each other in the play and the play was casting the audience within the play itself and that these lights were revealing everybody in the space of the story. But also these amazing candles that were lit, that were processed around the stage in these orthodox Russian ceremonies and were brought in closer to make little circles of light and out again to sort of expand circles of power. And then very simple wash lighting across the stage that went from cool to warm to, to indicate changes of space. And they were so simple, but they opened up massive worlds in the play. And I know you work with, with Judith Greenwood, on this production. So how did you go about that collaboration with Judith on this production and talking about the light in the play as you were putting the play together? One of Judith's great strengths is refining a grid so that it, it has advantages and that you can tour it because it's probably simply, it's only about 90 lights um, or even less. And her genius is to reuse the same lights in different ways and keep it simple. And that chimes in very much with our own ethos of design, I think. Keep it simple. 
down to absolutely what you need. The other thing that this traverse staging seemed to be particularly successful at doing was something that you talked about in another podcast episode, which is that it gave the actors the possibility to run a long distance because of this long alley. So we could see bodies in real physical motion. And that was something you used a lot in this production. Why is that important to you? I don't know. I, I just go, get depressed if I go and I see the space being so small that the actors can't move in it. I, I don't know, it makes my heart shrivel a little bit. I mean, just that there's a potential for movement is very important. And I think that stillness on stage is very important. But behind stillness, I believe there is movement while we're alive. And it just makes my heart sing to be able to see somebody moving fast across the space, being able to move at different rhythms. You can move fast, you can move slow. But above all, you can move because we see so, we learn so much about each other by how we move so much more So a consistent theme in our talks in this series of the podcast has been the amount of ritual that appears in your productions. And there's a huge amount of ritual in this production, crownings and baptisms. And this one also had a lot of monks and priests parading around. What was it about ritual in this play that helped open up the action for you? We tend to have ritual um, in order to protect us from chaos. And even in a very small way, you know, Nick and I were, like everybody else, we're kind of coping with being locked in. And I realized that we're sort of, our meals are becoming a bit more ritualized, you know, we sort of light a candle and set the table. And <laughs> those little rituals that demarcate the hours of the day become more important the more scared we are. So we clutch to rituals, and particularly at times of pain or fear, um, religions always do very well at extreme moments like birth and death and, and marriage. So the church obliges by providing a, a ritual that helps you through these thresholds, these liminal points. But I think, yeah, that ritual is the other side of chaos. And they, um, they reassure us, they order us. I think so much of Yeats's line, you know, the prayer for my daughter, written in time of civil war in Ireland, you know, he, he wanted to be in a house where all is accustomed, ceremonious. I know, I just find that very moving. And I can understand that, you know, if you do have a child, you might well want them to be protected by ritual, but not suffocated by it. And where you draw the line, that depends. That depends on what? That depends on your common sense. Well, talking about these juxtapositions, such as between ritual and chaos, one really stark image of juxtaposition in this play was the fact that you had the body of a very small child in it that the murdered dimitri was actually a little a little boy in your production who who appeared on stage what was it about um casting him as so young that you thought was important for this production the whole play turns on the fact that the czar's heir has been murdered that the real zarevich the real dimitri is the little boy and there's a terrible power vacuum and it was a terrible time in russia it's called the time of troubles roughly the same period as the end of Elizabeth's reign in England, you know, roughly the period of Shakespeare's writing, actually. But the little boy is central because everybody's people are pretending to be him, people are taking his throne, taking his name. He wanders through the stage like a ghost in our production because he's the pivot around which the whole play revolves. 
He functions a little bit like Mamilius in our production of The Winter's Tale, that there's this invisible presence of the, of the child who's dead that gets ignored. In a way, in The Winter's Tale, he always gets no attention. That's how he's removed. But in a way, the dead child gets so much attention in the middle of Boris Godunov, that means you get no attention at all. So actually, you can you can disappear under a mountain of fake attention. I don't know. I just found that figure of this ghost boy very important in it. So... This play has got a really interesting production history in Russia because when Pushkin wrote it, it couldn't get passed by the censor, by the Tsarist censor, to be performed on stage. So it was actually performed mostly as a chamber play for 30 years after its production, which basically meant that small groups of friends were reading it together in private settings. And it didn't get a full production until 1866. And then after that, it's had a pretty patchy history in Russia, this great Russian play that never really had a grand introduction to the Russian stage. And your production in 2000 was, in many ways, one of the first great productions of this Russian play, but created by two British theatre makers, which is a kind of extraordinary moment with this script. The interesting thing, the sad thing, is that I'm afraid it wasn't just the censors. One of the things that happened was that his envious friends didn't pay it very much attention. He got the impression it wasn't really that important. Pushkin himself thought it was the best thing he'd ever written, and he was very deflated when other people didn't agree. And so he never went on to write anything as magnificent as that again. It was like this one-off, amazing introduction to a a Russian epic theatre that never happened. But it wasn't really the censors, it was the friends, actually. When we came to do Boris Goodenough, it was a very interesting point in time. It was 1999, Russia had been having its own period of troubles, and when I planned it, I remember distinctly at the press conference in, in 1999 talking about this play that was about an incompetent ruler of Russia called Boris. And actually, I, you know, I didn't mean it that consciously, but this great sigh went up from the audience and they were, they were thinking about Boris Yeltsin, whom at that time many people felt very cynical about. Anyway, we went into production and in 2000, Yeltsin made this surprise speech saying that he was tired, he was going to stand down. And he found this person from nowhere, kind of unknown apparatchik, who was going to temporarily run the party, and that was um, Vladimir Putin. And in fact, Putin was just voted in before we opened. So it was around that whole time of transition that we were doing this play. Boris in the play is a leader who has a problem with his legitimacy, who finds it hard to hang on to power, and so is taken over by a completely new generation of somebody who's a complete newcomer to power. And perhaps we should ask ourselves if Russia is not the only country to have found itself governed by a chancellor called Boris. It is bizarre, because Russia at that time is pretty much like Russia now, let's face it. Basically, I designed the costumes in an afternoon, because you drove to three centres. One where bought suits, and mothers were there with their young men dressing them in business suits. And you chose a fabric, and you say that style, and they were ordered that afternoon. You then took your car through another traffic town to the church facilities, which were about 10 acres worth of workshops where you bought church vestments, church tat, anything you could think of. Didn't you see a bishop in there being kitted out in yeah, the regalia? There was a tiny little old man, incredibly old man, being dressed in these magnificent robes. <laughs> Just amazing. But again, about 10 acres worth of workshops. And then the third place you went to was the army display and you bought the army stuff, which were the anoraks and stuff, and you could choose different styles. It was so weird as a cross-section of Russia. 
business, the army and the church. So this leads us to our last question of today's episode, which is, as always, what are each of your favourite lines or moments from this production? Well, I remember when Jenny Moronov had the idea of the coins in his pocket because he was looking like a good Russian actor for an activity. What do you do when you're waiting, you know, waiting for your loved one to arrive? Mm. And he had this idea of the coins. And I think the point about this is they're not gold coins. They're worthless. They're like single kopecks. And then at the end, the whole scene turns at the end, the very end, after all this shenanigans, he remembers to pick up these worthless coins out of the pool. Uh, yes, and, and it also mirrors another moment in the play when the um, the Holy Fool character, the little boy, takes his money. He says, he took my kopeck. It's a very famous line in Russian. And so what was your favourite moment, Declan? Oh, well, I like it when Boris says, Arti jalati chap manamach, how heavy art thou crown of manamach. He realises that power is really difficult. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. If you want to find out more about Declan and Nick's production of Boris Godunov, check out the link in the podcast notes, which takes you to the Cheek by Jowl archive. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Maxim Gutkin for Boris Godunov. Join us next week for our final episode in this series about William Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Until then, stay well. Stay well.